All right, well, turn in your Bibles with me to um, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to start this morning. Um, that is where we, we have been in a, in a series um, for our Advent series that we're calling The Humble King and looking at uh, Jesus' example of humility in the Paul's epistle to the Philippians. And um, in, in this series, we, we, we've, looked at, we've looked at a lot, of, a lot of the aspects of Jesus' incarnation and of him coming and particularly the, how that is so couched in humility. And this is a, I mean, this is literally the dirtiest page in my Bible. Um, the uh, epistles of Philippians and Ephesians uh, almost just opens, opens to itself. I mean, it's literally, the page is filthy. Um, I should wash my hands more, probably. Um, but um, <clears throat> but this, this short section is so dense with doctrine about Jesus Christ and provides such deep um, support for his, his deity, if that, is in, if that were to be in question, and, uh, and just confirms so much of what we, what we believe. Um, and particularly this morning, we look at the, we're, we're going to circle back to a couple of verses that we had looked at a few weeks ago and really uh, look at the incarnation where God puts skin on and dwells among us. And so I'm going to read the, the, whole, the whole section here, but particularly verses 5 through 7 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Starting in verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God bless the reading of his word. As we look at these, these verses and as we particularly think about this season of Advent and particularly this moment on Christmas Eve and, and Christmas morning, as um, I don't know why we always assume that Jesus was born at night. Well, I guess, I mean, he, he certainly could have been. The shepherds certainly came at night. Um, but <clears throat> but as, as, as we approach this moment that we have been anticipating, I, I want to I draw some connection here to this passage in Philippians, which takes no effort at all because it's talking about that. So um, as we look at this here, Paul is encouraging this. He's encouraging a heart and attitude of humility that results in unity, particularly among believers, but it also results in a certain posture toward the rest of the world. And he first holds up Christ as the ultimate example of that, and then he, um, then he will uh, later on, we, we won't get to this in this series, but later on then he holds up Timothy and Epaphroditus, a couple other pastors, um, as great examples of humility. And then he holds up uh, his own example that he had, that he lived before them 
as examples of the humility that results in service to others and results in a posture toward others that results in unity and that that is God's desire for the church. As we, as we develop the context for what we're talking about this morning and because it's Christmas Eve, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Um, last night, if you were with us, we did a, a kind of a, a paraphrase, a paraphrase, um, I don't want to say version of it, but kind of a, a how, maybe, maybe possibly how the reader might have, how, might have heard this. But let's read the text this morning from Luke chapter 2. Starting in verse 1, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and line of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth, to her first, uh, she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of, of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. <clears throat> such a powerful story, such a familiar story. And there's so many things like we, we looked at last night, so many things that are right there on the page that we don't catch because we don't ha you know, often have the context for them. Um, but I don't, want to, I, I don't want to give the impression, I feel like sometimes I can overstate that, and I can give the impression that like, you can read scripture, but you can't really understand it because you don't understand all the other things. And, and I, don't, I, don't, I hope I don't give that impression. If I've made you feel that way, raise your hand. No, don't raise your hand. Um, <clears throat> We can understand scripture. We can read it. Um, the spirit of God illuminates his word so that we can understand it, so that we can see our need and confess our sins, that is, agree with God that our sins are in fact sinful and do in fact deserve his righteous judgment. And we can call on his, we can throw ourselves on his mercy like he calls us to do and receive his forgiveness we can read his word and understand all of those things, whether we can read Greek and Hebrew 
or not, whether we can have all the historical context or not. Beyond the gospel, then, our lives become this mission of mining valuable truth from the word of God. And that is our lifelong quest and should be. And, there's, and, and, and I guess what I, want, what I want it to be is an encouragement to you that there is always more to be found. And so never, um, never grow slack in pursuing your understanding of God's word. I want to look at a few things here in the, in the Philippians 2. See, it literally just opens right up to Philippians 2. Um, <clears throat> I want to look at a few things here in the Philippians 2 passage as we connect that. Um, and we're also going to look at some Old Testament prophecies this morning. But some of the, of the phrases that are used here in Philippians 2, I want to zero in on. One is that he emptied himself. Being the, starting in verse 6 here, uh, who, who, talking about Jesus, though he was in the form of God, or another translation says it a little better, though it being, and so that's why sometimes you have some variation in that, but it's, all, it's the same idea, but different, you know, English, like I said, English is dumb. It's this non, it's not very specific. It's, it's this, we say things in English and then we have to clarify it because there's so many ways to say it. And so he, he's in very nature, God did not see fit to use his God nature for his own advantage, but instead made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a slave. Your translation will probably say servant, um, but the word there is doulos. And doulos is a slave who has chosen to relinquish all of his rights, even at the end of his term, when he could have had his freedom back, he's already paid his debt, he's reached the end of his term, he could have had his freedom back, and he says, you know what? My own independent life is not going to be better than the life I have with this master. This master treats me better than I'd treat myself. I choose to remain in service if he will have me. Jesus takes on the form of a slave, and then becomes obedient. He, he's being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. Well, why would he be? Oh, because he took on the form of a slave. What, is a, the, what does a servant, a slave do? The, particularly the doulos who has, who has relinquished. He has, no, his, he has given up his rights. He has given up his his, his own will. He has no will of his own. He has only the will of his master. He fully trusts his master and he fully obeys. Jesus becomes obedient. This is the biggest step down in all of history. No one has ever stepped from one position to another from the height of to the lowest depth, like Jesus Christ did. When he put skin on, I love the, the, the hymn that we sang this morning, the Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I, I don't know about you, but every year, I'll get one phrase from a Christmas carol that just sticks in my head and just runs over and over, and just meditate on it. And I don't mean like jingle bells, like one of the Christmas hymns that we sing. And just meditate on it. And this happens to me often. But the one that has really stuck in my mind this year as I've, as I've been studying for these, uh, these messages and, and just thinking about the Christmas season is 
from Hark the Herald Angels Sing, Veiled in Flesh, the Godhead See. In other words, come and see the Godhead, veiled in flesh, covered up with skin. Because we can't look at, we can't look upon God. The, the, the Bible says that he dwells in unapproachable light, or as I used to say when I was a youth pastor, it will melt your face off. You cannot look upon God. We are sinful. Even Moses, who was called a friend of God, Moses could not look upon God, even there in his presence on Mount Sinai. He said, God, can I see you? God said, that would kill you, um, and I love you, so I won't do that, but I will cover you up and pass by you and let you see the swoosh where I've just been. Like, this literally, like, the, what the word, it doesn't, like, have you ever, like, like uh, had someone walk by you and you weren't looking, but you, like, felt the, felt the, that's what, that's what Moses was allowed to see. And he glowed for, like, a month after that. It freaked people out, so he had to wear a veil because literally it was like he was radioactive. Literally, his skin was glowing because he'd seen the swoosh of where God had just been. That's what God let him see, and it did that to him. And so when we look upon Jesus, we are looking at the Godhead veiled in flesh for our benefit. He takes on human form, but not just human form. He takes on the form of a slave and becomes obedient. I mentioned this, I don't remember, maybe last week, but it bears mentioning again that it is easy for us to feel like or to believe or to think that Christ in his infinite love for us came Became, put skin on, became a man, and, and then, you know, by the end of his life, it, at his death on a cross, actually ends up taking a lower position even than us. And it's not true. It's not true because we are so reluctant to rightly view ourselves. We look at Christ on the cross and think, wow, he lowered himself even below me for my sake. And the reality is, no. From heaven's perspective, which is the only true perspective, from God's perspective, Jesus dying in humiliation on the cross, having lived, you know, having lived at like the, you know, totally poor, having lived with no, nothing to his name except the shirt on his back that gets gambled for, having, having, you know, been falsely accused and dying as a Criminal, not just any criminal, Rome executed all kinds of criminals. In fact, again, getting to the translation thing, the thief on the cross, remember Jesus is crucified between two thieves? Maybe. The word translated thief is almost, it sounds almost exactly like, it's like one letter slightly different. It, it's, it's like the same word almost as the word zealot which if you're familiar, it was a, a radical group, a radical anti-Roman group within Israel in the first century that came out of uh, a lot of what we just read about, talked about last night. The zealots were seditious. Those were the kind of people 
that Rome wanted to make an example of. This wasn't Vlad Tepish in, in, uh, in, in Romania, you know, the guy who was called Dracula. I mean, it said that he could set, he set a golden goblet on the, on the, in the, in the fountain in the city square and no one ever stole it because they knew the penalty was death. That's not what Rome did. They didn't kill everybody who stealed by hanging him on a cross for everybody to see. Believe me, there were more than two thieves in Israel at that time. Good grief, if they crucified everybody who got arrested for stealing, they'd never quit. No, this was reserved for the people you wanted to make an example of. You do not stand up against Rome. You do not stir up people against Rome, or this is what we do to you. Jesus crucified between two thieves, maybe, but more likely zealots. We look at the Christ on the cross. We even look at the Christ in the manger. You know, oh man, he was born in even worse conditions than I was born. Well, that's probably true because most of us are born in hospitals. But, um, <clears throat> but we think he's born into a, a lower station than us. And we don't have the class system officially in our culture. Um, but, you know, officially or not, you weren't born into the Walton family or the Gates family or the Bezos family or the Musk family, fill in the blank, okay? You were probably born a little lower than that. Jesus is born to a construction worker and his wife. Jesus Here's the point where I'm going with all this. The point is we view Jesus as having taken a lower station than us when in reality God views us as deserving of that station. Christ took our place and that was the place. The place that was ours, which Christ took, was the death of a criminal on a cross in humiliation and abject poverty. That is us. Spiritually, we are in abject poverty. <clears throat> he emptied himself or made himself of no reputation. He was found in human form and the form of a, of a slave. It, it, it's, it's, even, it's, it's kind of equated here. He made, himself, he made himself of no reputation taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. In other words, being born in the likeness of men for Christ is making himself of no reputation. He is the one who is king of everything. He is the one deserving of all praise and glory from all of creation and for him to put skin on and become like us is to empty himself. That difference in reputation, to go from king of the universe to, as the people around Nazareth would have known him, the bastard son. The, in fact, we, we see that later in the Gospels. Isn't, is this not the carpenter's son or the builder's son? They didn't build stuff with wood. They build stuff with stone. 
Um, is this not the builder's son? In other words, you know, isn't this Joseph's son? You know, the one he claims isn't his. He emptied himself. The king of all things, the creator of the universe, treated in that way. Made himself of no reputation. Just the fact of taking on human form is the form of a servant. I just want to to make one note on that. In God's paradigm, which is actually ours, we just don't acknowledge it most of the time. In God's paradigm, everything that is found in human form is in fact subservient to him. Can we agree with that? Christ is the only one who could even, you know, who could even be an exception to that. Everything, that is all people, ever, in human form, we are made in the image of God, but we are not God. Jesus was and is and always has been, always will be God. But all things in human form are subservient to God. And so he becomes obedient. This sounds strange to us that he becomes obedient to God, but he is God. So he's like obedient to himself. And then we, we, we hear as he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane right before his crucifixion, um, God, if there be any way, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. It's not that, God, that Jesus was so, so distinct from the Father, he had his own separate will, but was willing to uh, submit that to the Father. It's that as the doulos, the bond slave, He doesn't have a will that is different from the Father. His will is the Father's will. And so he becomes obedient to that will, which is his only will, the will of the Father. Jesus came into the world out of love for the people whom he created. Can we all agree with that? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He certainly came into the world out of love for the people whom he created. I I don't want to lessen that at all, but I want to give us some perspective. More than that, much more than that, more primary than that, the love for people is secondary. Primary is he came into the world for his own glory. You see, we don't like to think of it that way because we like to elevate our own importance. I'm so lovable. I'm so wonderful. God loved me so much. He sent his own son to die as a criminal for me because I'm that great to God. And that is not the right biblical way to think about all of this that happened. No, God loves his glory so much that in coming to save us, there is an opportunity for Jesus Christ the Son to be elevated to even higher glory. It's the ultimate, you didn't have to do that. 
how much how much does it glorify? We don't use that word in this way, but how how much does it glorify someone when they do something just above and beyond ridiculously nice for you? And your response is, "You didn't have to do that." I hear my wife says that all the time. Um, she doesn't want people to help her, but she needs people to help her. Um, and so it's like, "You didn't have to do that." There is no more ultimate. You didn't have to do that than God coming to the transgressors that we are and in his own in his own great love making a way for us to come to him and in doing so it is the ultimate you didn't have to do that because now Jesus gets even more glory for humbling himself in a way he didn't have to do so that he could be elevated even more. Instead, he didn't have to elevate himself. It's a, we'll get to the, um, actually, Ethan talked about this last, uh, last week, that, that God exalted him even more highly. Verse 9, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Therefore, the therefore is pointing to because he did this, therefore God has exalted him. You, we have to understand rightly that Jesus coming to earth, putting human skin on, and then and living at the bottom rung of society for most of his life, and then dying even lower than that as a criminal in humiliation and abject poverty was for his glory. And here's the thing. That could sound really selfish and self-centered if he wasn't actually deserving of it. We don't like when people elevate themselves, you know, above other people. It's like, come on, you're like, nobody's that great. You're not that great. We, we, we think that way as we look at other people who want to elevate themselves. And so we can tend to um, kind of project that onto Jesus and like, well, that's kind of like he's like after his own glory. That's kind of like, I don't know about that. Well, first of all, we, uh, we don't stand in moral judgment over God. Because our moral compass doesn't point north, and his does. And second, it's a different story when he actually is that great. And he actually is deserving of that kind of glory. God is primarily interested in his own glory. The, 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 the fathers of the Reformation certainly identified that in the 1500s as as uh, Martin Luther and then and then John Calvin and some of these other people in the, at the time of the Reformation were were kind of boiling down and rediscovering the doctrines of grace. Um, <clears throat> Luther had his his five his five solas, his onlys, the irreducible minimums of the gospel, the things you can't miss. They were. Sal that salvation is only by the grace of God. And that is obtained only through faith in only Jesus Christ. And the only reason we know about that is because of only what Scripture says. And the purpose behind it all is only for the glory of God. Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to Scripture alone, 
for the glory of God alone. Remember that. It is not because we're so great. It is not because we're so deserving. It's not because God just looks at us and just has these warm fuzzies. He just can't even, he's like, you know what? I just love these people so much. I'm going to put my son on a cross. That just like, just love them. No. <laughs> that is a, not even a gross oversimplification. That's not even accurate. The goal all along was God's glory. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. I should want that. We should want more glory for God. And here's the thing. God doesn't want to destroy you eternally for your sin. But he will. The Bible says that he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't want to sweep you away along with the devil and his minions when he comes to judge the world. But all unrepentant souls will be swept away with them. He's not willing. He doesn't want that. He would want all of his image bearers to come to repentance. <clears throat> but in rightly judging sin, God gets glory, does he not? Because he is perfectly righteous and perfectly just, perfectly holy, and cannot coexist with sin. Cannot. And so he gets glory in judging sin, then gets even more glory by having made a way to show mercy. I would rather God get more glory through me, and so I throw myself on his mercy as one completely undeserving of it, but fully believing that he will give it because he's promised it. He has promised a broken and contrite spirit, O Lord, you will not despise. The man who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will live. These are promises from the word of God. <clears throat> As we look at, the, at the, the arc of human history, we see repeated over and over. It, we see it on the grand scale, and we see it repeated in smaller scale throughout history is the, the rhythm of creation fall, redemption, and restoration. We see it across the, the, the whole of human history from Genesis to Revelation. We see it within the nation of Israel multiple times um, throughout the Old Testament. We see it for God's people. We see it for you and me. I want to take us through uh, really quickly these promises that are fulfilled in Christ. Understand that, that there is a um, sometimes the word used for faith and the word used for hope are the same word because both, both of them are, are, are looking to the same thing. Hope looks forward to something that hopefully will happen, that we believe will happen. Hope is the Old Testament. It's faith also, but the faith in the Old Testament is hope in an event that has not yet happened, but it will, and it's promised. And our faith in the New Testament is faith and belief in an event that has happened. All of, the, all of scriptures points to this moment that we celebrate tonight, the birth of Jesus Christ. And, and even more points to what we celebrate at Easter, 
the death, burial, and resurrection of that same Christ. Let's look at how the Bible tells one story. Genesis chapter 3, 15. Chapter 3, verse 15. You can turn there with me if you want. It is a race, and there are points uh, for those who can get there before I finish reading it. Um, You can follow along if you want. If you know you can't get there, just listen. That's okay. Um, There is some value in putting your eyeballs on it, but but don't don't miss what we're we're saying here. Genesis chapter 3, 15, we find the first promise of the Christ child. It is immediately after the sin of Adam and Eve, and God is promising, God is pronouncing judgment, but in his judgment, leaving a promise that will be fulfilled. And he's actually speaking to the serpent here, because that is where the real battle is. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, not they, he, shall bruise or crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. That is the first promise. The first promise that someday a rescuer will come. Later on, God is speaking to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12 and, and verse 7, God says to him, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. And so there is this, this, to your offspring, and in that, Christ. This will belong to him. Uh, Then the the next chapter over, Abram gets uh, some pretty cool interactions with God. A little later, God appears to him again, and and he says in chapter 13, verse 15, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. Takes him up to a high place. All of this will be yours. And then in uh, chapter 24, verse 7, another promise to Abraham, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred and spoke to me, swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. Why does that seem important? Because there's there's a point. If one of the offspring, he also promised, uh, there's all kinds of promises. We, we find out the, that this, this rescuer, this Messiah is going to come through Abraham because he says, but through, through, through your offspring, the world will be blessed. He's not just speaking of his family, he's speaking of Christ. The opportunity for blessing through salvation extends to everyone through a son of Abraham. And, and so why is it important about the land? Because he is coming to that land. That one who is coming will come here to this place. It is connected. And this is, this is why, can I just put a commercial here? If you get the opportunity to go to the land of Israel, go. If, if you get the opportunity to go with Dr. Andy Smith, absolutely go. Um, <clears throat> these promises, the truth in Scripture particularly the Old Testament, is connected to one family and one geographical place. There is a people and a land that these these events are connected to. And to be there and to see it doesn't make God like you better. But it does help you to realize this is not a fairy tale land described in Scripture. You can go see it. God spoke about that land and that family. 
And there's something powerful about that. To the tribe of Judah, later, again, later in Genesis, Genesis at the end, chapter 49. Do you get a gold star if you get there before me? I'm just kidding. I'm not that fast. Uh, Genesis chapter 49 in verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. There's a promise in that that is eternal. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. There's a descendant who will sit on the... In fact, you know, let's go right there. 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I think we actually covered this not too long ago, uh, verses 12 to 15, to David. When your days are fulfilled, speaking to David, the the Lord is speaking, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. My steadfast love will not depart from him. Interesting. A partial fulfillment with Solomon and a full fulfillment with Jesus Christ, the son of David. And then we get more prophecy in Isaiah that we have been, we've been looking at throughout in our, in our Advent readings for the candles. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And there's there's more that goes on there, but this this is a powerful thing. Again, promises connected to a family and a place that helps the rest of the world understand this idea of a a branch, a, 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 um, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. There are olive trees all over the land of Israel, and when you go there, you can see them, and there will be some that you can see that are not the same tree. So it's not the same bark, but it is the same roots. See, olive trees grow, and they produce olives that are actually good for some years, and then they are not that good. And what they do is they cut the tree down, and then it grows back, fresh again. And the cycle starts over. You wait till it bears fruit, and then it has some good years, and then it gets to be an old tree, and they cut it down again. And near the, the Garden of Gethsemane, you can't see the same bark that heard Jesus praying, but you can see the same trees. All the trees got cut down when Rome sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD, but guess what they do? They grow back. There's a resilience, a picture of resilience in that. There's a, it's just things that's hard for us to understand, but it's so, so beautiful. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Something you, they thought was cut down. 
something they thought, you know, the, 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 the king, the line of kings they thought was broken. No. No, it's still alive. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This is a promise that is forever. Again, speaking about Jesus Christ. Um, a couple chapters before in uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 to 7, we read these ones as well. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Skipping down here, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Just read this this morning. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Hope and faith in the Old Testament is belief in the word of God that when he says, I will do this, it will happen. And for us, there is still fulfillment that will come at the end of time, but we have faith also in what has happened, that the word of God is faithful and true. As we close this morning, I want to take us to the, the Christmas story that we don't read very often. Or that, that, it doesn't get as much mileage at Christmas time, let's say it that way. John chapter 1. It is interesting, John, the revelator, the one who is given the book of Revelation, the revelation from God, it, it, when he writes the gospel of John, he is, he's described so often as the disciple whom Jesus loved. He was so close with Christ. Even among the twelve, he was, seems to be the one with the closest personal relationship with him. And yet he doesn't really record the beginning the same way. He doesn't record... The, the, you know, all the shepherds and the wise men and all, all that stuff. No, we, we get this. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Word, the, the word there is logos. It is also a word, the Greek word that we get logic and reason from. And no, this isn't some weird Vulcan thing. Um, no, in the beginning was the word. It's also logic and reason because the word which proceeds forth from God Almighty is reasonable. It is right. And if we judge it to not be right, then we're using the wrong yardstick by which to measure it. He was in the beginning with God. See, now that's interesting. Then, then it changes. So he's talking about the word of God, and then he says, he we see that again in the book of Hebrews. The word of, God, of the Lord is living and active, dividing to soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he is personalized. Jesus is the word of God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, 
And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Our candlelight service last night was a beautiful testimony of light dispelling darkness and, and the spreading of that light. Um, and, you know, we didn't all drive home with a lit candle in our car, but symbolically we did um, the light of the world. It is the, he is the incarnate word of God. The, the word, you know, going on down, to skip, skip down to verse 14 here. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Have you ever said something and had to walk it back saying, I didn't, I didn't really mean it like that? You ever sent a text that got taken the wrong way? Yeah. That's why I mostly just do phone calls. Um, <clears throat> and I'm old, so my thumbs are, anyway. Our words can often misrepresent us. God's word never misrepresents him. So much so that the second person of the Trinity, God himself, God the Son, is described as the word of God. And, and all of the action of creation is described as being accomplished by the word of God. God's word so represents him that it is him. And when the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us, we've seen his glory. I'm going to leave us with one more verse. A lot of scriptures more. One more verse from Galatians Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. <clears throat> God still dwells among us. Jesus actually said, you know, here he is, God in the flesh with skin on, living among people, and he says, it is better for you that I go. Because I will, the Father will send the Spirit the helper who will not just live among you, will live in you. That's the progressive revelation of God. This union of God and man in the garden, then broken, and then slowly revealed more and more, and then in person, and then in dwelling, and someday again in perfect fellowship at the marriage supper of the Lamb. As we think about Christmas and we look at the, the season of Advent and this thing that we anticipate and we remember anticipating, I want us to remember there is a warning in there as well. We anticipate, when we, when we celebrate the season of Advent, we don't just celebrate that he came, we are reminded he is coming again. And when he comes again, he will judge the living and the dead with righteousness 
and his judgment will be right. And those who have thrown themselves on his mercy for no basis other than the merits of Christ alone will be shown mercy. And those who have not will spend eternity separated from him in a real hell. I, I don't know what your story is. I don't know how you, um, how you came to Christ, and I don't know if you've come to Christ. And I don't know if someone has told you that you've come to Christ, whether you have or not. I don't know if you recited a prayer one time and pretty sure you're good. I've searched scripture. There isn't one in here that is required to be recited. That's not the point. Have you agreed with what God says about your sin? Do you look at your own sin and actually believe if God sent me to hell forever for my sin, he'd be right to do so? Do you agree with that? I think many, many people today do not agree with that statement. But scripture says that. To confess our sin is to agree with God, you would be right to do so. You are holy and I'm not, and I, I, can't, I can't be in your presence. Except, there is one who was promised from the beginning, who has come and has made a way for me to throw myself only on the mercy of God for no reason other than he said he would forgive me. And on that basis alone, I trust in the forgiveness of my sin and life everlasting with him. I don't know what your story is. I don't know how you came to Christ or how you think you've come to Christ. But whether you prayed a prayer or not, if you have not done that, your eternal soul is in jeopardy. He is coming again. And it will be a joyous occasion for some and absolutely horrifying for others. Please don't be in the latter group. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you do not leave us with no way to know how we might come to you. You promised from the beginning. You gave fulfillments along the way to show us we don't just have to blindly agree until, blindly accept and believe until the end, but we can see fulfillments along the way. God, you have given us clear instructions of how we might come to you. And then you've given us very clear descriptions of what someone who is saved by you will be. God, may we take a hard look at ourselves and throw ourselves only on your mercy because of what Jesus Christ has done. Thank you for this gift. We could come to you no other way because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.